Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. For years now, Americans have become increasingly concerned about universities. First, the cost of a four-year college degree, let alone post-BA education, has skyrocketed way beyond inflation. Second, Americans are worried about how college actually benefits students. Do they emerge from the experience more open to diversity of thought, more appreciative and supportive of intellectual and communal pluralism, or have institutions of higher learning become factories of conformity, compelling groupthink and discouraging dissent? Third, American Jews have been concerned for years now about the growing animosity towards Israel from students and faculty, encouraged or at least tolerated by many university administrations. The events of October 7 and their aftermath have exposed the dangerous nexus between anti-Israel animosity and downright hatred of Jews. Many Jewish students report feeling unsafe, and a large majority have reported either being involved in or witnessing anti-Semitism on campus. To help us understand better the atmosphere on American campuses today, I have a very special guest, my big sister, Ora Hirsch-Peskovitz. Ora is the president of Oakland University, a large public university in the Detroit metro area, with a total enrollment of close to 20,000 in-state and out-of-state students. She was among the first university presidents in the nation to issue an immediate condemnation of the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. It's a joy for me to have this rare opportunity of uninterrupted time with my big sister. Dr. Ora Peskovitz, welcome to In These Times. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Rabbi Hurst. <laughs> Listen, uh, this is the first time that we're talking actually professionally in public. So I'm going to take the liberty of not calling you Dr. Peskovitz. I'm going to call you Ora, but I'll be on my best behavior, I promise. Yeah, you haven't always been on your best behavior. Like, it's been a few years since you threw that shoe at me, and I walked around for three months with Two black eyes. What, are you you bringing up something from uh, 55 years ago? I've treated you with the utmost respect, at least since I became uh, a father, at least. A famous rabbi. <laughs> yes, now you're a famous rabbi, and I do listen to all your sermons and all your podcasts, <laughs> and I'm very delighted and honored that you invited me here to be on the podcast with you now. By the way, that is a high honor for me that you actually listen to what I say, because I'm convinced that one of the reasons that I became a rabbi in the first place is because, one, it's a vocation where when I speak, people have to listen, mm -hmm. and two, I get to choose the topics. Well, that's sort of true, but I don't know if I agree with everything you say, but I do listen to everything you say, but it's an honor for me to be here with you. It's an honor for me to have had you accept the invitation to be on the podcast. So tell us, first of all... Uh, how you doing? It's hard to be a university president nowadays. Is it a good job? Yeah, it's a great job. It keeps you young, being around young people. You spend a lot of time being energized by the young people. We get to learn from the professors, learn from the students, learn from the, from the donors, learn from the community, get to go to basketball games and theater and lectures. It's a wonderful job. I'm glad to hear that because when I see university presidents, you know, I often see them 
when they're covered in the media and there's usually a crisis there, they always seem so burdened by all of the pressures and the competing pressures. Every decision, you have groups of people who are opposed to whatever decision you make. Well, that's true. I mean, it's it's a stressful job. I mean, these are stressful jobs. But, um, you know, you have to get a thick skin. How is the atmosphere in universities different from when... Uh when you and I were in university? Well, the atmosphere on college campuses is tense right now. And there's no question that the Israel-Hamas situation has created a lot of animosity, hostility, and tension. And alliances are shifting, and it's created some distrust and tension. Only 17% of Americans have a great deal of confidence in their colleges and university. And this is at a historic low. This is down from 28% in 2015. And the main reason for this is that they believe that the value of a higher education and a degree is related to the cost. So they believe that the return on investment is just simply not worth it. So the the decrease in confidence in uh, universities, you would attribute primarily to their rising cost of getting a university degree? That's true, perhaps, for the very, very costly elite universities. But even there, I believe that the degrees are very worthwhile. But at the regional public universities and the state public universities, the costs are really moderate and the education is both affordable and accessible. 75% of America's college students are educated at regional public universities. At my university, for example, a family that earns less than $70,000 a year, a student will not pay any tuition. And if they do graduate with some debt, they will then be able to pay that debt back in one year and seven months because they're gonna get a high paying job due to that degree when they graduate. It used to be when we were growing up that you know, university was everything. Go to university. You have to go to university. The parents would take another mortgage to send their kid to university. And I speak with so many people now in professions who tell me they don't necessarily think that a university degree is a qualification, even for industries that you would think would require a degree. Like, for example, I've spoken with a number of journalists who tell me that they don't necessarily hire people who went to universities because they feel that what they acquire in universities is actually counterproductive to the task of journalism. So do you think they're wrong about that? And could you tell us why? Well, let me first of all say that I hear this all the time, and especially people on the right who say that they have educated their children very well at home, and they're very concerned that when they send their children to universities, that we undo the education that they've given their children at home and that um, we've indoctrinated them. Therefore, there's no real benefit to a college degree. But if you ask them whether they think that their own children should not go to college, the reality is that none of them would actually make the decision to send their children either to a trade school or to even a community college. When you probe it far enough, all of them insist on getting their own children 
to get at least a four-year degree. Furthermore, the fact that we have a very uneducated population, we actually need to teach young people even more than we're currently educating them in college, not just about how to be resourceful and how to learn and how to debate, but we have to provide them with an even better education. Can you imagine if we didn't provide them with an education at all? And when I reference the fact that so many of our students actually have upward social mobility and the fact that they're able to graduate with low debt, if any, and then go on to get high paying jobs, that's because even still today, most companies and most businesses still require a four-year degree for those top jobs, the high-paid jobs. And over the course of a lifetime, the data are very, very clear on this. An individual with a four-year degree will earn, on average, a million dollars more than someone who only has a high school degree. And someone with a master's degree will earn an additional $500,000 and someone with a professional degree, like I have an MD, will earn significantly more than that. And the data go on and on. Now, those are averages. And so, of course, you have people like Steve Jobs, who didn't ever graduate, who obviously earned billions. So there are exceptions, but the exceptions are really far and few between. What's the culture like at Oakland University? Are, are people prepared to listen to one another? Are, is the current generation as eager to absorb and encounter people with different opinions than, say, our generation? Well, this is something that, in general, I would say, across the country as a whole, we haven't done a very good job. And it links to another topic that I think we should talk a lot about, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And these things are connected. But I am very proud of some efforts that we have at our own university, my university, where we have a very, very sophisticated center for civic engagement, where we uh, have a wonderful professor who leads this program, who has invested in his career specifically on how to engage in speech and how to debate complex topics. So we have hosted a number of public debates on very difficult topics, like recently after the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, we hosted complex debates on that topic. Do you get people who oppose even holding that kind of debate? Are there people, students as well as faculty on your campus, who would say, we shouldn't even entertain listening to one side of the, uh, of the argument? We didn't have major protests on that one, but I'll tell you one where we did have protests. So we recently had one of those sessions, a big forum, where we had two past governors, a past Democratic governor and a Republican governor, Rick Snyder, who was well known for having served during the Flint water crisis. And during that discussion, we had significant protests about the fact that we even invited Rick Snyder to be on the podium, that we allowed him to come to this forum. We often have to remind our students about the fact that we will not cancel invited speakers. And this happens, of course, in universities across the country. 
I'm sure that you're well aware of what happened at Stanford when speakers were invited and canceled. The same thing has happened in many universities across the country. It happens in universities all over. But we are very proud of the fact that we work hard to create a culture where we teach our students how to listen and how to contribute thoughtfully to debate on all sides. Mm -hmm. So let's get to some of those other topics that, especially for the Jewish community, are uh, at the top of our agenda now. At Oakland University, there's a relatively small percentage of Jewish students. There's a relatively high percentage of uh, Muslim students. And you came out after October 7th, after the Hamas attack, with a statement that severely criticized Hamas and the evil and the terrorism that was perpetrated on Israelis. You were one of the few university presidents, actually, who immediately responded on that day or within 24 hours. Right. First of all, let me mention where my university is located. So we're located in Rochester, Michigan, which is about an hour north of Detroit and very close to Dearborn, which is the uh, city that has the highest proportion of Muslim and Arab Americans in the United States. And I came out with a statement on the evening of October 7th, which was very short. It just simply says, to the campus community, we are shocked and horrified by the unprovoked acts of brutality by Hamas terrorists in Israel. Both families, including grandparents and infants, have been massacred or kidnapped from their homes. Our hearts go out to all the civilians, all the civilians who are victims of this senseless violence. The victims and their families are in our thoughts as we hope for a rapid and peaceful resolution of this crisis. I, I'm not aware actually of any other presidents that put out a statement on October 7th. I should note that I subsequently had two other statements that came out later that week as Israel then went on with the attacks in Gaza, I was quite empathic and made statements to demonstrate compassion for the civilian lives that were being lost. But it is important to note that I received hundreds of vile and very angry responses to that first statement that I put out the evening of. October 7th. First of all, can I ask you, the um, the responses, the vile responses, as you said, you received, were they mostly from university students or were they from activist organizations? Do you even know? I don't know. I actually don't know because many of them were anonymous. I would tell you that I suspect that they were mostly not from my students because we are a public university. So when I put out public statements, which I do relatively infrequently, those statements are on my website and they are open to the public. So I suspect that that statement got publicized in a lot of places and we're very well known in Michigan. We may not be that well known outside of Michigan, but we're quite well known in our area. So I got several hundred responses and I, I do know that some of them were from my university community. Some of them were signed by people that I know. And some of them, I suspect, came from uh, from around 
the state of Michigan or from organizations even around the country. And many of them came in the same kind of language. So they were probably from organizations that went viral. I will say that I've had this, you know, when you're in a university presidency, you are the target of many kinds of attacks. So I had a very similar thing happen during COVID when we made decisions around masking or decisions around immunizations. I was regularly attacked then too. So this was not novel to me, nor was it particularly threatening, candidly. So it, it obviously it didn't change your mind or influence you that perhaps you did the wrong thing by coming out with a statement uh, immediately after October 7th. No. And of course, you and I grew up in the same family. So no. Now you've, you've had, and you mentioned to me, your interactions with many other university presidents, almost all of them stayed away from issuing statements. It's not as if it didn't dawn on them or they, that they didn't think that maybe they issue statements on lots of things. Could you explain to us what were their motivations on why they didn't issue statements? I have to admit that I was actually quite surprised about many of the reactions. In Michigan, we have an organization of all of the public universities. About a month after October 7th, we got together and among the topics that we discussed was how we were dealing with this situation in crisis. And then about a month after that, I got together with the American Association of State Colleges and Universities that represents over 300 universities. So again, it came up, how are we all dealing with this? I was shocked, really shocked to learn that I was, in that case, definitely the first and one of the only presidents that had put out a statement. Initially, most chose not to put out a statement at all, but after pushback from various constituencies, some of them then put out statements, like they expressed sadness for the loss of human life, both in Israel and Gaza. When asked about why they were reluctant, they said things like, well, you know, we have few Jewish and Palestinian students on our campus, so we didn't feel that there was a need for us to respond at all. Others said, we don't want to put out a statement that's going to anger some students and maybe not appease others. Others said things like, well, there's justification for the attack by Hamas because we believe that there's been 75 years of occupation by Israel and therefore even though these are horrific acts, we can understand why Hamas did this. And others even went so far as to say that they did not believe that Hamas was a terrorist organization. These are university presidents? Yes. I was appalled. So there were more than one university president? Yes. In this group of leaders... There is a principle called the Calvin Principle that the University of Chicago, you know, they established in 1967, which basically says that universities should not get involved in putting out moral statements unless it involves directly universities. 
In other words, they should say things that involve education. They should make statements about research. They should talk about things that involve their campuses directly, but they should not comment on things that involve the world politics. They shouldn't talk about, and this came about at the time of the Vietnam War, they should not talk about the Vietnam War because it's not connected directly to their university. And since 1967, the University of Chicago has never made statements. But a number of these university presidents said, this is too hot a topic for us now. We're going to now adopt the Calvin Principle. And yet these very same universities, these presidents, had commented on George Floyd. They had commented on the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. They had commented on Ukraine. But all of a sudden now they got religion and they decided to adopt the Calvin Principle and decided that now they should not comment. You said it surprised you, it even shocked you. Was it depressing for you? Did you push back on that? Well, I challenged them, of course. All of this, by the way, predated the three presidents appearing before Congress in December, which is when I really spoke up about it, you know, nationally. But yes, of course, it it, it was so depressing. It was particularly depressing because I, I felt like I was standing alone. It's sobering. I mean, it says something about American higher education or the character of many university presidents. Not all. Not all. Of course not all. But still, as you said, it was the exception that university presidents issued statements at all immediately after October 7th. So it says something, I think, about the culture, about the nature of leadership, how university presidents see their role, whatever it is. It is sobering that on an issue of such basic human morality, 1,200 uh, people slaughtered, innocent people taken hostage, including babies, that it's not self-evident to the people in charge of the institutions of the search for truth and moral truth that they don't immediately see their role and even after being confronted that they should respond, that they, that they stay silent. Let me ask you about the testimony. You mentioned the testimony on Congress of the Harvard, the Penn, and the MIT presidents. You were mentioned at uh, that hearing by Congresswoman Haley Stevens, who's your representative. You and she actually wrote an article together, an op-ed together. I think it was The Hill. Was that the publication? Yes. What were your reactions when you first encountered that part of the testimony that was especially controversial? Well, I knew that they had been prepped by lawyers because, you know, we're always prepped before we do things like this. And it was clear to me that they had practiced their responses, but they resorted to legal rationalization of what was allowable. And they clearly missed the boat. I did not feel that they were at their core, anti-Semitic. But it's clear to me that they missed what they were supposed to do. You know, I do worry a little bit that the public reaction did not fully appreciate. They, their, their performance was 
abominable. There was an element of what they tried to say, which is in fact correct. And that is that we do have to protect free speech. But what they did not do, and this is really what the problem was with their testimony, is the president has the right of free speech, just like everyone else on their campus. And they did not use their right of free speech to condemn anti-Semitism, just like they had condemned other forms of hate speech in the past. They had condemned racism on their campuses. They had condemned fat phobia. They had condemned the incorrect use of pronouns. What amazing hypocrisy that they had condemned other forms of speech that were much less offensive kinds of hate speech in the past. So they could have used their right of free speech themselves. Why didn't they? Well, well, I'll come back to that in a second, but they have a second obligation besides their right of free speech. And this is where I feel so strongly. They have an obligation, which is where all these other presidents and these three also fell short. Presidents have a moral obligation to not only condemn, but to be educators and to be moral leaders in the same way that you as a rabbi have a moral obligation to lead your flock. We are a substitute parent for our institutions. We have to educate on moral principles. And I feel very, very strongly about that, that educators who are leaders of the institution have to teach right from wrong. Otherwise, there is a risk that hate speech can turn into hateful actions and violence. And that is the purpose of a leader. Why didn't they do it? Okay, you ask, why didn't they do it? Were they afraid of the backlash from the different audiences? Did they themselves have some of those views? I don't know. I don't know these particular three people. I can't speak to that. I really don't know. But it was a moral failing. I, I agree with that completely. Mm -hmm. I think that part of it might be that university presidents nowadays don't necessarily see their role as being moral leaders. Their role is to uh, shepherd and steward the, the community, to raise funds, to keep the rankings high. Do you think it's a common perspective that university presidents see themselves as moral leaders? Well, I'm not sure if all do, but I think they should, and I do. Now, you know, morality may be in the eye of the beholder. Uh, not everybody would agree with what is a moral or ethical position, and I don't weigh in on many positions. I think I have to use my voice selectively because I do think that the president's voice is precious, but when there are these occasional moments, I think it is important to speak with a moral voice and clarity and emphatically and forcefully. And this was one of those times. Can I ask you, do you feel it's your role to get into the question of whether anti-Zionism constitutes anti-Semitism 
statements like from the river to the sea or uh, liberate Palestine or globalize the Intifada. You're president of a public university. You're, you must abide by uh, constitutional uh, requirements. Is that within the constitutional space of free speech? You know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And is there in your mind a connection between that statement, that, which is for sure in the realm of anti-Zionism, does that spill over into anti-Semitism? First of all, the slogan itself, I think, is very genocidal in its what its meaning is. From the river to the sea, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. From the river to the sea, Palestine should be free is a anti-Zionist and anti-Jewish statement because when Hamas put it in its charter, they meant it to be genocide of the Jews regardless of whether they were in Israel alone. So first of all, if a student in my campus were to put up the slogan, should I allow them to use it? The answer is, for me, yes. I have quoted the study that was done in the Jerusalem Post of 250 U.S. college students that asked these 250 students whether they knew which river they were talking about and which sea. 86% of them did not know which river or which sea. I didn't do the survey on my campus, but the Jerusalem Post did it. Furthermore, when they then went to them and explained to them what it meant, two-thirds of them said, oh, you mean that that would mean the destruction of the state of Israel and genocide to the Jews? I'm not going to say that anymore. So what the take-home lesson is to me is that education of hate speech is very important. And that is my obligation as a president. So I have a primary obligation to permit free speech. I don't like it when there's hate speech on my campus, but I'm obligated to permit it. But I'm not obligated simply to condemn it. I'm obligated to educate and to explain why it is not what students think that it is. Now, at the same time, are there faculty and some students who say, who might pretend that they mean from the river to the sea, let's all live in harmony, but actually do mean the destruction of the state of Israel? Yes, some of them do mean that. It's still, I am obligated to permit free speech and I can't do anything about that. But what we can do is prevent Violence. I want to ask you about affirmative action and DEI. There's a big debate now in the Jewish community. It's a central debate now, whether DEI is simply not repairable and that the Jewish community and those who are sympathetic to classic liberal values and free speech and so on should not seek to work within the DEI mechanism that's been established uh, over the last generation, but seek actively to circumvent and even dismantle it. We grew up in the same house. Uh, our father was one of the central figures in the civil rights movement, uh, representing the Jewish community. 
in all kinds of marches, including at Selma. He was friendly with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King delivered the classic 20th century liberal statement on race. I want my four children to be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And more and more, it looks to people, including in the Jewish community, that DEI is not actually about that. It's about judging people by their identity, by their group affiliation, by their race, by their ethnic background, and so on. Tell us what you think about DEI. Do you like DEI? Can it be saved? So I'm two years older than you, and our parents took me, you were too young, but took me to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I was six, you were only four, so you didn't get to go. But I have been thinking about the civil rights movement for every job that I have ever had, and this is not my first job, but I have made diversity, equity, and inclusion a central focus. So I am very concerned about where I see this headed. By the way, in my current job, and I'm now in my seventh year as president at Oakland, my very first act was to create the position of a chief diversity officer. And my second act was to add DEI as our fourth strategic goal. 23 states have now current legislation to pull funding from DEI offices at universities and have banned diversity statements in hiring and eliminate identity-based hiring and admission practices. Those are right-wing states. But as you've said, many liberal Jews are actually concerned about DEI offices because of what believe that it is the source of anti-Semitism on college campuses. I have a great concern that we should not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And it's partly because these DEI offices are to a certain extent fueling criticism that they contribute to polarization, cancel culture, and many are increasing tension on campuses. But the problem is that there is this reductionist philosophy that is leading to binary moral categories like you're either racist or you're anti-racist. You're either powerful or you're powerless. You're either rich or you're poor. You're either oppressor or you're oppressed. You're either colonizer or colonized. You're either in the majority or you're in the minority. You're either black or you're white. And because of this shift in DEI offices, this is how Jews and Israel, especially since October 7th, but even before how Jews and Israel have ended up as the targets of some in the DEI community because they've been viewed as rich, they've been viewed as white, they've been viewed as powerful colonizers and oppressors. And that has contributed, as you know, and as you're concerned about, to these blind, uneducated protests and the burgeoning anti-Semitism. But in my opinion, okay, in contrast to many leaders in the Jewish community, I do not believe that the solution is to disband, defund, and destroy DEI, but rather to bring it back to its original goals of diversity, which includes, by the way, diversity of thought. It should include all forms of diversity. And we are a minority. At my university, Jews make up 1% of our student population. So 
it should include all forms of diversity. And what has happened as a result of this reductionist approach is exclusion, not inclusion. And we need to go back and work on that because your father, who is my father, and Martin Luther King would be devastated to think that we have abandoned the good parts of DEI just because in the past couple of years, we have gotten off track. I don't think anybody, and certainly not in the Jewish community, is against diversity or equity or inclusion. It's the DEI machine that has been co-opted by uh, people of a certain ideological ilk that some in the Jewish community feels can't be reformed. You're suggesting at your university, at Oakland University, you have a DEI mechanism that is actually working and is serving the goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I would say that it is not 100%, but it is working better than at many other places. And we still have work to do, you know, and I would say that's the case in most places, but I can't think of just throwing that out completely and starting from scratch. I would say we have to fix it. This is the final comment that I want you to give to uh, all of the parents of kids who are going to school. What's your message to young Americans who are about to enter university or are in university now? The future is bright. You know, there's a lot to learn and you can't do it without higher education and without a degree. And there are so many great opportunities and so much to learn. One of the important things to learn is how to debate, how to listen, how to have tolerance for others and the importance of free speech. And for Jewish students in particular, higher education is a great place and don't be afraid to be a Jewish student and to display your Jewish identity and to be proud to be Jewish. Dr. Ora Peskovitz, this has been a delight. We should do this more often, actually. Uh, yeah, I never get to talk to you that long. That night, that's right. All this time, maybe we should, at the next family gathering, we'll carve out 45 minutes and you'll interview me and I'll tell you all about what's happening in the Jewish community and in synagogue life. But you make us proud. Our parents were and would be today very proud of you. So uh, keep up the good work and thank you for the time. You too. You're my little brother and I'm proud of everything that you do. I watch every podcast, every sermon, and I know that our family's spelling about you, Amir. I so enjoyed this conversation with my sister. First, because she's an exceptional person and the best big sister one can ask for. And secondly, as a president of a large university, she knows what's going on on campus. And she impressed me. In principle, I support programs and initiatives that promote diversity. I am in favor of culturally sensitive and culturally affirming curricula in schools and universities. Even before college, teachers in middle schools and especially high schools are right to address racism in meaningful ways, including highlighting systems that have been, or still are, systematically racist. They are right to teach the true and complete history of slavery in our country and challenge students to grapple with its residue in their lives. American youth should know much more than they do about the failure of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, race riots, and the Civil Rights Movement. 
So while I, of course, support the goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I have an operating assumption that guides me in assessing social theories. If a philosophy produces animosity towards Jews, by definition, the philosophy is flawed. It is neither just nor liberal, even if it employs the language of liberalism and justice. If a theory produces hatred of the Jewish state, not criticism, fair or unfair, but obsessive loathing, by definition, there is something wrong with the theory. An intellectual approach that advocates for the destruction of Israel cannot be just or liberal, no matter the high-sounding words camouflaging its illiberalism. A theory that automatically defines and categorizes Jews as a racial group, by definition, cannot be liberal or just. There are Jews of every color and race, and in fact the majority of the world's Jews are not of European descent. It also distorts Jewish values, the way we see ourselves. Jews never divided the world or the Jewish people by skin color. We divide the world by values and deeds, good ideas and bad ideas, good actions and bad actions. Truly liberal approaches allow and encourage individuals and groups to define themselves. This is what diversity means to a liberal, that different cultures, languages, religions, and traditions possess unique dignity and offer profound benefit to society. When it comes to the Jews, you don't get to define how we see ourselves. You only get to decide whether you want to accept Jews as we define Judaism. It's what you demand of every other group in the name of diversity, equity, inclusion, and tolerance. True liberalism demands that you not make racial assumptions about us, especially assumptions that we ourselves do not make. If in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion, Jews are lumped into an identity group by virtue of their immutable characteristics, the color of their skin, not the content of their character. If in the name of social justice, Jewish schoolchildren and university students are accused of undeserved privilege and economic exploitation, and thus invested in and colluders with racism by virtue of the color of their skin, not the content of their character or the measure of their deeds, and if in the name of anti-racism, Jews are viewed primarily or exclusively through the prism of their race, and every objection of every Jewish student or their parents is evidence of their fragility. If in the name of inclusion, Jews are excluded from advocacy groups because of some warped social theory that requires them to disown Israel first, then our understanding of justice and liberalism has gone far astray. As a lifelong liberal, I recoil from the illiberalism of some in the progressive world. Liberals have a tolerant mindset and a tolerance for debate and competing views because we know that it is only through disagreement and deliberation that we can evolve into a better society. We value truth. We do not simply make things up or lazily mischaracterize and misapply flawed and false analogies. Liberals do not think in all-or-nothing categories, and engaging people who do is highly frustrating for us. They are impervious to logic or reason. They will not change their minds and will not change the subject. Liberals understand and respect complexity. We appreciate that the human heart is far too complicated and society is far too complex to construct one overarching theory and one dogmatic solution to all social problems. Liberals are instinctively uneasy about an assertion that the only possible explanation for different social outcomes must be different and discriminatory treatment. Liberals rebel against all leveling and all uniformities. 
We believe these are inconsistent with human nature. We are different. We perceive things differently. The most liberating spaces are where the death grip of suffocating certainty and stifling uniformity cannot reach. Liberals believe that while in heaven there may be absolute truth, on earth there is only truth filtered through human limitations and fallibilities. For this reason, we liberals emphasize freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, and intellectual and political pluralism. We believe in carving out as much space as possible in society to allow and encourage a vibrant marketplace of ideas. We do not seek to shut down debate through ostracism, excommunication, or uniform speech. To the contrary, we want to encourage you to express your opinions for two reasons. First, to learn from you. You might have something useful to teach me. You might even convince me. And second, to challenge and refine my own thinking so that I may refute and perhaps ultimately convince you. Liberals are optimistic about the future. I can change. My opponent can change. Even my enemy can change. A theory that abandons these principles may be many different things, but it cannot be liberal. Institutions of higher learning should see their role as challenging our certainties, provoking and encouraging us to be more humble, less arrogant, less self-absorbed. The natural default position of every human being is that I am at the center of the universe. My needs come first. All of us are constructed this way. I see the world from the inside out. Higher education should cause us to pause, to consider that simply because I feel a certain way about a book or a philosophy or a domestic or international policy, others may not. And perhaps their views are also legitimate. If I open my mind, they might even change my thinking. They might persuade me. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.